recognized that the most senior officer accompanying them, the coal-eyed Captain William Judd Fetterman, was the man who would lead them on their paramount mission, to find capture or kill the great Oglala Sioux warrior Chief Red Cloud. For more than a year, Red Cloud had directed an army of over 3,000 Sioux, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho warriors on a campaign across a territory that spanned a swath of land twice the size of Texas. It was the first time the United States had been confronted by an enemy using the kind of guerrilla warfare that had helped secure its own existence a century earlier. Although this irony went largely unappreciated in dusty western duty barracks or eastern boardrooms where railroad barons, mining magnates, and ambitious politicians plotted to create an empire. Red Cloud's fighters had ambushed and burned wagon trains, killed and mutilated civilians, and outwitted and outfought government troops in a series of bloody raids that had shaken the U.S. Army's general command. The fact that a heathen headman had rallied and coordinated so large a multi-tribal force was in itself a surprise to the Americans, whose racial prejudices were emblematic of the era but that Red Cloud had managed to wield enough strength of purpose to maintain authority over his squabbling warriors and notoriously ill-disciplined fighters came as an even greater shock. As was the white man's want since the annihilation of the Indian confederacies and nations east of the Mississippi, when he could not acquire native lands through fraud and bribery, he relied on force. Thus, at the first sign of hostilities on the northern plains, the powers in Washington had authorized the army to crush the hostiles. If that did not work, it was to buy them off. One year earlier, in the summer of 1865, government negotiators had followed up a failed punitive expedition against Red Cloud and his allies, with the offer of yet another in a succession of treaties, this one ceding the vast Powder River country as inviable Indian land. Yet again, gifts of blankets, sugar, tobacco, and coffee were proffered while promises of independence were read aloud. In exchange, the whites had asked, again, only for unimpeded passage along the wagon trail that veined the dun-colored prairie. Many chiefs and sub-chiefs had touched the pen at a ceremony on the same grasslands of southern Wyoming where, 14 years earlier, the United States had signed its first formal pact with the Western Sioux. Now, as he had in 1851, Red Cloud refused. He argued at council fires that to allow this dangerous snake in our midst and give up our sacred graves to be plowed under for corn would lead to the destruction of his people. The white man lies and steals, the Oglala warrior chief warned his Indian brethren, and he was not wrong. My lodges were many, but now they are few. The white man wants all. The white man must fight, and the Indian will die where his fathers died. By November 1866, the 45-year-old Red Cloud was at the pinnacle of his considerable power, and the war parties he recruited were driven by equal measures of desperation, revenge, and overinflated self-confidence in their military mastery of the high plains. The nomadic lifestyle they had followed for centuries was being inexorably altered by the white invasion, and they sensed that their only salvation was to make a stand here, now. Otherwise, they would be doomed to extermination. Red Cloud's warnings would prove prescient. The mid-1860s were a psychological turning point in white Indian relations in the nation's midsection. Earlier European colonialism had involved not only the destruction of native peoples, but also a paternalistic veneration, partly influenced by James Fenimore Cooper, of the cultures of the noble savages, 
their fate decreed by a heartless federal government whose deliberate policy was to kill as many as possible in needless wars. Now, however, Cooper's romanticism was a receding memory, a newly muscular America replacing it with a post-Civil War vision of manifest destiny. The old attitudes were reconfigured with cruel clarity, particularly among Westerners. Even whites, who had once considered Indians the equivalent of wayward children, naifs like Thomas Gainsborough's English rustics, to be civilized with Bibles and plows, were beginning to view them as a subhuman race to be exterminated or swept onto reservations by the tide of progress. By the summer of 1866, the United States had broken the previous year's flimsy treaty and constructed three-fourths along the 535-mile Bozeman Trail, which bisected the rich Powder River Basin, an area delineated by the Platte River in the south, the Bighorns to the west, the wild Yellowstone River in the north, and in the east, the sacred Black Hills.